Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. How the devil are you? And however you are joining us on this episode of the podcast, it's damn fine to have you here. On this episode of Leadership Bites, I am joined by Lucinda Pullinger, who is the Global HR Director for the Instant Group. The Instant Group create and source workplaces, and I think they're at the cutting edge of what they do. You want flexibility in your property portfolio, you want to reduce cost, you want to drive enterprise performance. They absolutely understand that. They work on a global scale, and if you want an offer, office next to a gym next to a train station these are the people that will find it for you you want to have an office built these are the people that will help you do that when you think about workspace especially with covid and the lockdown you may have some thoughts and opinions about the impact that that's going to have on this area this is a very interesting episode and lucinda brings some real clarity about what an organization like the instant group can do in terms of its innovation and i think what i hear absolutely in what she has to say is the fact that the instant group is ahead of the curve and has been in this space a lot longer thinking about the way that things should be, could be, and the way that they operate is exactly where the market's going to have to go. This is very, very interesting, I think, in that context. The thing for me about Lucinda is that I think she is absolutely indicative of the kind of HR director that is fully commercial, understands her role in terms of that people and cultural piece, and has a seat at the table in which she is an absolute demonstrable part of that commercial team. She impresses me. She's succinct. She's forthright. She's highly intelligent and absolutely clear about how she achieves what she achieves. I think you're going to enjoy the podcast a lot. On next week's podcast, I have Dave Ulrich, the HR guru, and then I have other guests lined up. I have Clara Min, the global head of sales for Adidas. I have Manisha Singh, the global HR director, digital HR for Schneider Electric. Now, let's not forget Kevin and Stu and Philippa, who are part of the Living Brave delivery team. They're going to be picking up some other topics with me along the way, such as corporate social responsibility and some other things that really just take our interest. Now, what do I want from you? I want you to enjoy the episode, of course. I want you to subscribe subscribe and the most important thing is please do share this podcast with people we're still very new we're trying to get off the ground we're getting great traction we're getting great people on and of course the more people listen the more i can go after some of the big guns to get them on because we've got a bigger audience so enjoy it subscribe and of course you're going to hear me in a minute in the intro say tell everybody right Welcome to Leadership Bites with your host Guy Bloom, a leadership podcast, conversations, just me talking and occasional interviews. Check us out at livingbrave.com and when you enjoy the episode, subscribe and tell everyone. Lucinda, it's absolutely great to have you on this episode of the podcast. Thanks, Guy. Good to be here. Good. That's a great start. Uh, I Obviously, I know who you are, and I've done an intro just leading into this episode, but it would be great for people to hear the role that you do, the organization that you work for, and where that organization places its focus on what it's actually known for. I work as Global Head of HR for a company called Instant Group. We play in the workspace industry, so we're all about helping organizations navigate increasingly complex work world of workspace and office space. And really what we do is we're independent, completely independent from any buildings or property or landlords or anything. And we help organizations to inject agility and flexibility basically into their footprint or their real estate portfolio. We're a fast moving, agile company, which is pretty non-traditional in the property industry. So we buck the trend a little bit from that perspective and help organizations maximize their workspace. So if I can come at this from, obviously some people will absolutely know what that means and fully be cognizant of it. And yeah. From the layman's perspective, 
I'm going to say something now which will either make you wince or go, you've nailed it. Is that when somebody as an individual or as an organisation wants to have access to office space that they don't want to own and they in essence want to rent somewhere for their people to utilise? Yeah, not quite. So I would say we work with organisations who are very, very small, so just want four or five desks all the way through to huge corporate organisations like Amazon and and Glaxo and other multinational organisations. It might be a very straightforward request. So they might say, I need five offices, five desks in Hoban near a tube station, and it needs to be near a gym. And we'll find the different options in the marketplace for them, and we'll help them decide which is the best option for them, both finding those properties, but also using our insights to help them make the decision that's right for them. And then that scales all the way up to the huge organisations who might say, you know, Amazon obviously are very busy at the moment, they're expanding fast, and they need huge offices in various different locations around the world. And we will help them source the right office, or we might actually help them build the right office, we'll help them fit out that office. So working with the organisation to understand their culture and really what they want out of that office space and what the role of that office is going to be. And we move very fast. And so we can generally do that much more quickly than they can do themselves. We really understand what that client and what that business is trying to achieve. So the client's own strategy, their own values, their own culture, and how we can help them maximize their real estate portfolio. And generally with a business, the three biggest costs that an organization has would be their people, their technology, and their real estate. And so it's generally a huge cost to an organization and helping them get the best out of that asset, as well as move quickly with some of the business challenges that they may have is where we play. Much better than the way I said it. Well done. (laughs) It's even clearer now, so I love that. So it feels as if there's a large footprint that you have, but also a boutique feel to it, as it will we'll make that fit for you. Absolutely. So we're completely and utterly client-centric and agnostic in terms of the suppliers that we would use, locations, providers, offices, and anything else. So what we really enjoy is getting to know a client in depth, understanding their business strategy and providing a solution that is bespoke to them, be that on a small scale or on a global scale. We can do both. That gives me and anybody else listening a sense of where you're operating and what it is that you're about in your role as a global HRD and I almost pre-COVID I was able to just to talk about this in general terms but it's just such an overbearing reality that it, it comes into the conversation what were you doing pre-COVID <laughs> where was your energy where was your focus and has that changed or has that just magnified Yeah. So when I joined the business, I joined about 18 months ago and there was a lot that was really exciting about it. I'd come from a relatively slow moving business and the pace of instant and the innovation and the energy was really exciting. But one of the things that I felt was that there was ever such a lot going on. We have really good people with loads of good ideas and they were all off doing loads of stuff. I felt it lacked a bit of direction. It lacked a bit of cohesion. As a result of that, what we did towards the end of last year, 2019, is we set about working on our purpose and really what our three to five year strategy was. So considering what is the purpose, what glues us together as an organization with all the different capabilities that we have, what are our points of differentiation in the market? Are we really clear on those and are we really dialing them up? And what are the behaviors that we want to instill in our organization to make sure that we achieve our purpose? So there was this big piece of work that we did towards the end of last year and then that was completed and then we rolled it out to all of our employees with a series of workshops around the world. And that finished with the workshops in Asia pack. So I went to Australia, KL in Malaysia, and I literally got off the plane about two days before lockdown started. So I went out there sort of during 
the beginning of lockdown in Asia and came back and the focus changed completely. It went from the long-term focus and the strategy and why we're here into what does this mean for us and how are we going to navigate over the course of the next however many weeks or months it is. There was so much that was unknown at that point. So it was quite a slap around the face for me thinking all strategically and then suddenly having to go into very operational mode. So that was what I was doing just before the lockdown started. And what was interesting was it was really fortuitous for us, the timing of this, because we had just spent a lot of time and energy agreeing that our purpose and, and strategic drivers and our behaviours. The reason we spent a long time on it is because we wanted to get to a place where we were shoulder to shoulder around this from a global exec perspective. So there really wasn't a cigarette paper to put between us. And the reason it was fortuitous is suddenly you could go into a crisis and it held us. It was a real foundation for us, I would say, through that crisis because we had a direction. We understood what bits of the business were most important to us and that we wanted to dial up. And so even through that crisis, there was a real anchor for us to make the decisions that we had to make. It was sort of a fortuitous exercise to complete just before the pandemic hit. Yes, I imagine there's lots of organisations that haven't actually got that clarity or they have that clarity in the context of a benign operating situation. But actually, if they haven't really challenged themselves, then when the storm strikes, almost they, they haven't got anything to lean on. That sounds as if that's been hugely valuable. Yeah, and I think people, they know what's important to them and their bit of the organisation quite often. So they'll be very clear. But what it doesn't necessarily do is when you throw it all together, it doesn't, I mean, to use a sporting analogy, make the boat go faster. If you're all pulling in slightly different directions, your organisation isn't quite moving as fast as it could. If you're all absolutely pulling in the same direction, then the organisation will move more quickly. So I never doubt that senior people know what's important to them, but it's that point of cohesion across the organisation, which if it isn't really ingrained and really true, then I think it can cause problems in a leadership team. Yeah, one of the things I talk about is connection, and I don't just mean eye contact and being present, but that willingness to contribute outside of your own need. That's a big thing for me that I often don't see people doing other than superficially, but it sounds as if that's something that's really shone through for you. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. It is superficial. So people are, yeah, yeah, we all agree. and But what they're actually thinking is about their own agenda. And as long as they get their own agenda bit and they're progressing their own agenda, then people are happy. But actually... If you don't have a shared purpose, then you're really only acting as an individual. So I think if you've got something that really runs deep and it's a genuinely shared purpose at your core, it takes quite a long time to get there. It's quite an investment of time and energy to get there. But once you've got it, it's really powerful. And I'm fascinated by this because this is the work that I do with senior teams. It's quite easy to, well, actually to often a red herring and a lot of wasted time to write a vision statement where all the energy goes into the crafting of it, but not into the actual emotional content that sits behind it. Yeah. So I'm very aware of that I often talk about this idea of unified purpose and there being agreeds and givens and the givens are the stuff that we have to do because it's the role that we inhabit then there's the stuff that we've agreed we're going to do and I'm just interested there in what were some of the stepping stones to yes okay that's the job role as the senior leadership team but what are we going to do that only we can do by working together how did that become from an intellectual statement into a more of a physical reality well, when I first talked to the global exec about it, everyone thought it made sense. But what really got them over the line was when you start to put a commercial business case around it. So I worked really hard at the beginning about putting why this is important. It's not just a nice thing to have. It's not a communications tool. It's not something just we're going to do to engage our employees and make them feel part of something. This is actually going to be a business tool. It's going to be what guides our decision making decisions and our investment decisions and really pulls us together. And there were a number of different ways that I pulled that business case together. And I think when the exec 
exec team looked in the mirror, they realized that they were acting as there were elements of the business that was working in silos. And they could see through the business case that we'd pulled together that if we had this shared purpose, how it would help them and the success of the organization. Getting them to buy into the importance of it upfront was key. And then it was off-sites that we went through where we had really clear rules. You know, if there's anything that you're not comfortable with in this, you say it and we'll keep reworking it until every single person in this room buys into it. And then once we'd worked quite hard, you can imagine that process was a little tortuous at times. We made it fun as well along the way. And once we'd got that, everybody was 100% behind it and really excited by it. So then you take it back into the business and you start to say, so what does that mean from a what are we doing perspective? You know, how do we make this from a picture on a page, a sort of graphic, if you like, into something that's a real business tool? And it's quite easy to do the comms piece around it. You do lots of engagement workshops, but how do we make it into a business tool and all your business processes have to come out of that? So whether it's your business planning process, whether it's when you're writing your strategic plans, how you engage with the board, how you report, building it into all of that. And it just becomes your organization. It becomes the way that you do things. I wouldn't say there was one stepping stone that got us over the line. It was a combination of people buying into what we were doing up front, why we were doing it, the content of what we delivered, and then embedding it in the organization. And to be honest, we would have progressed that embedding more if it wasn't for COVID. It slowed us down in some ways because I haven't been sitting here thinking, how can we recruit in a way that aligns mm. with our purpose? You know, I, I've been <laughs> I've been doing other slightly more urgent things. But what it has done is it's tested the content and it's come through strongly. It's held us really well. And I think that's one of the things that is very often very telling. I do wonder how many organisations have come out of the back of this better for it culturally or damaged for it. Mm. Lovely values, Mr and Mrs Organisation, other than we haven't seen any of them present because of the way that you've been treating us during this fiasco. Or, wow, I couldn't be more proud of this organisation because actually the values has been present in the behaviour. That, for me, is what's the test of pressure done to the actual behaviour, particularly of a leadership team. You touch on a topic there around values and behaviours. I think we've actually moved away from values and we've moved to a set of behaviours. And the reason for that is values are quite personal. It's quite difficult to change somebody's values or tell them what their values need to be. But I think you can tell people what their behaviour should be in an organisation and what we want to see more of. And that has worked quite well. I think the when I was at working at Shell, one of the values was honesty. And everybody thinks they're honest. You don't ever get to a position, you know, are you dishonest? Yes, it doesn't happen. But if, if you turn that value of honesty into a behaviour and you say, OK, our behaviour is always tell the truth, suddenly people know what to do with it. And it has a different take on it. Do you always tell the truth? And the answer is probably no. Sometimes I don't want to say your idea is rubbish when I think it's rubbish because I don't really want to dampen your enthusiasm. So I'll go, yeah, yeah, I'll encourage or do I do you like this dress, husband? Yes, yes. <laughs> so I think if you have behaviours, people really know what to do with them and it's much easier to translate into everyday work. So I think that has helped us as well. Yes, it's less open to interpretation, isn't it? it? Yeah, it is. Well, exactly. I, didn't lie, I didn't lie, did I? So I wasn't being dishonest. Yes, but yeah. were you telling the truth? Yeah. I do like that a lot. I never forget years ago I used to work in an electrical goods store and there was a gentleman behind the desk who worked in customer service and customers would come in they'd throw a toaster at him and say it ruined their breakfast and <laughs> 10 minutes later they'd be saying sorry I was so rude and you're awesome and they'd call the manager over and go this guy's brilliant because he was fantastic at turning people around they'd leave and as they left he'd always make a comment like what an ass." or yep. something like that and the manager I'll never forget it pulled him to one side and said listen you can believe what you like I can make no demand on the thoughts going through your head the only thing I can make a demand on is your behaviour and this is what good looks like and the nice thing for that was it wasn't saying this is how you should think which I think is what you're saying there you can't exactly. dictate you may or may not like me right now you are going to show respect 
exactly. Or, or this might be for you. So I do like that idea of let's talk about behaviours rather than trying to make a thousand people believe a certain thing and in my previous organization we had values and we had to go through this exercise and although we did it well we had to go through an exercise to say so what does this value mean in your job what could you be doing to live this value whereas when you have behaviors you don't have to have that step the behavior tells you almost let's just jump to the end game right yeah and just make it understandable and digestible for people I love that. So you mentioned Shell and you'd mentioned being in the organisation actually for about 18 months before. I'd just like to get into that. Your history of getting to where you are today. What was the path? Was it a straight line or a bit of a meander? It'd be nice to get a sense of that. I started off working for Accenture or Anderson Consulting as it was in the late 90s. And I was there for about five and a half years and I did HR roles. So I was on that HR graduate programme. And then I actually moved from HR into consulting. So I was client facing fee earning. I thought I would love that, but I didn't. I enjoyed the pace of the client-facing work, but I didn't enjoy, just as I got to know an organization and I'd built the relationships and I really started to understand the business, I'd be off that client and onto a next one. And I just didn't like that sort of chopping and changing. So I didn't want to do consulting anymore. So then I decided to move and I went to Shell, where I was there for over 10 years. Shell is a big group of companies and I worked Shell Trading which was interesting because it was fast moving and the future was pretty much this afternoon. The traders couldn't even think into next week, really. So it was a very short term business. And then I moved from there to what we called at the time future fuels, which was the future was 2050 or even beyond. And we were talking about biofuels and hydrogen and solar powers and goodness knows what else. So that was very interesting because the strategy and the sightline of the business was completely different from one to another. And then I did a global talent role and then decided that I wanted to change. I'd been at Shell for over 10 years and my personal personal passion and interest outside of work is sport. So I thought, well, I've got a transferable skill set. I'll go and work in sport. I didn't really care what sport, preferably a ball sport, just because I understand ball sports better. (laughs) Um, That was was about as focused as I was. That's like me buying a car. Has it got a steering wheel? Yeah, exactly. It's blue. (laughs) It'll do. Anyway, I ended up in the HRD role at the RFU, which is the Rugby Football Union. So it's the governing body of Rugby Union for England, based at Twickenham. And I worked there for four and a half years and loved it. I had a great time. I was really enjoying it. But I met met my current CEO. I met, he's an ex-rugby player. So I met him through my job at the RFU and kept in contact with him for a number of years and was ready for a change for a few reasons. And I was excited about joining a fast moving, there's that theme again, private equity backed business in a new industry. It's a real growth business. Obviously this year has been a bit kiboshed a bit with one thing and another around the world, Brexit and then Hong Kong riots and Australian wildfires and then COVID. So it's been quite a year to really grow an organization was something that I haven't done for quite a long time. So I took the plunge and joined Instant 18 months ago. So I'm not quite sure whether it's a wiggly path or a straight line. I think the big thing in my career was going from these huge corporate multinational organisations with Accenture and Shell to much, much smaller businesses. And I'm much happier in the latter. I don't think I'll go back into the big corporate world now. Well, there's something, isn't there, about not so much the span of control, but there's something about ability to actually feel the difference. You can turn left and feel like I don't have to wait two and a half years for that to actually become an output. (laughs) Yeah. And you, and the, where I am now, one of the bits I love is, you know, there's global exec team, obviously, which I'm a part of, and we have the freedom to make decisions. So we can make a decision and the business moves. In some of these larger organizations, that was pretty hard work. In terms of the role that you have as an HR director, there's 
all the expectations that go with the outputs that you do in that role. But there's also something about what I class as the conciliary position. The You are very often in a role where people come to you with their excitements, but also their anxieties. Particularly in this time, how do you manage your own resilience in a space like this? I mean, resilience is that word that can sometimes be overused, but I do feel that the HR role is one where you're taking on board a lot of people's anxieties around their relationships with others or the stresses and strains that they may be under and part of that's you know is you're carrying a bag with other people's weight in it i'm interested in particularly in these particular time how that's landed and how you manage that i guess good question from a resilience perspective i have probably had to draw on resilience during the last few weeks more than probably more than ever before in my life demanding job mother of two primary school aged children one of whom hates home learning <laughs> and a husband who also has a full-time job. And with one thing and another, it has been a really, really challenging time. But interestingly, to get to your question, when other people open up to me, or as you could see it kind of land their problems on my shoulders, I actually get energized by that. So that might sound peculiar. Maybe that's why I ended up in this job. I don't know. But when people come to me and, and they trust me enough to open up and you know, I've got colleagues who've got, maybe it might be issues at home. It might be issues in the workplace. It could be issues with children or health. And all of those things actually have happened happened over the last few years in my career. And when people do come to me and open up, it actually gives me energy. I think it probably helps my resilience. It helps my energy levels. I like being trusted. I like being able to help all people find a way through. And not always that I don't have all the answers, but normally if you work together and inject some coaching skills in, they can find the way themselves. And so I have, I don't find that that difficult. You know, even in situations that people think are situations of horror, like we have had to make some redundancies in our business, an area of the business that didn't align so well with our new strategy. Even in in that situation, because we go about it, I hope, in a very respectful way in what is a very difficult situation, I actually like helping people through that process because it can be done terribly or it can be done very well and respectfully. Actually, I don't find that that impacts on my ability to feel resilient. It probably helps me, which is a slightly peculiar answer. But No, I, th- I think what I'm hearing, there's an energy in being able to help enable others. You're getting a, a battery recharge in some way vicariously from a sense of personal value and being able to enable. Yeah, I think when I've had moments of when my resilience has dropped, if I was just thinking back now, when when I've had days when I'm kind of like really at the end of my tether, it's been when the IT doesn't work or it's when I've got to really spend hours on a budget spreadsheet or something. And that's when my resilience drops, whereas someone calls me up with <laughs> with some sort yeah. of personal trauma, I get quite energized, which makes me slightly <laughs> sadistic. But, um, but yeah, so I think that that's when my resilience has dropped, when it's been things that probably don't engage me or motivate me as much when I've had to really dig deep. I've mentioned this on one of the other episodes. I was speaking to one person. He said, uh, you know, I, I don't think people will want to go back to, into the workplace once you've worked at home. And I was quite fascinated by that. I said, well, that's because you live in a five-bed detached property, my friend. You know, Exactly. It's a really are, interesting other question. Other people don't. They live in a flat, right, with one room and they have to share it with their partner. Yeah, and three kids and a dog. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, my business now is all to do with the office. And people are saying to me, oh, my goodness, you know, is your business going to collapse? And, and the answer is not at all, because there will be a role for the office without a shadow of a doubt, helping define what that role looks like for each organization is really 
an interesting piece of work. But what I think what organisations do want and need is flexibility and agility. The idea of signing, apart from head offices maybe, but other than the signing sort of 10, 15, 20 year leases, people want to have a flexible and an agile portfolio because if this year's taught us anything, we don't know what's around the next corner. Making sure that we can help organisations say, what is your optimal workspace strategy? There's probably going to be a lot more homeworking, which is a great thing for wellbeing. And there will be some need to come into the office. So what does that look like for your organisation? And how can we help you move to that point much more quickly? That's quite exciting times. And although our CEO says we're not really in the real estate business, we're in the people business. And that's true. You know, office space is it's a, an asset. It's people, it's people in it. Right? But it's people. It's about yeah. how to, how do you get people who into a place where they want to go in the office and they want to collaborate with their colleagues and they're energized by it but you also let them work from other places whether it's home or offices workspace that's nearer where they live so they can avoid public transport there's a whole ream of different things that we're looking at but quite exciting times so i think that adaptive nature of your business is quite interesting to me because i imagine potentially 3,000 people traipsing into a head office one at a time into a lift is going to take them four hours to get to the yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, upstairs but those satellite hub innovation that flexibility that almost the mad idea that somebody may have could be a game changer exactly. at any point we just may not have had it yet or maybe you're having it right now I don't know exactly and real estate's quite a traditionally quite slow moving particularly innovative you know been doing the same way for a very long time and i think what this crisis has done is globally inject a bit of a shot into people to say it can be done differently and now there's a lot of ceos because real estate is on the ceo agenda now uh, who are saying well how can we do this differently we need to do this differently we're not going to send 20,000 people into the central business district of new york we need hubs nearer where people live or you know how could it look and we've been talking in this way for a while and some people buy it and other people think no you know we're not that's too big a move for us it's too big a step to take (laughs) and now I think what the last 15 weeks has made them do is go actually that is possible we can do it so talk to us about it some more and show us how it can be done one of my favorite memes that went around when this first started was that that job that you've been told you can't do for the last 20 years from home turns out you can turns out you can exactly i was on an hr call the other day and they were saying that from a flexible working perspective we've achieved more in the last 15 weeks than in probably the last eight to ten years which makes it very very exciting two things for me then one is the when we look at the leaders in your organization wherever they may sit what are the behaviors that have shone through to you that have yeah i'm sure that they were present prior but have really shone through in this time of that's the stuff that's the behavior that really marks you out as somebody that understands what other people need at this moment one of our behaviours is is help the client win, help our customer win, making sure that we adopt a completely customer-focused mindset at all times, really putting ourselves in the footstep and the shoes of our clients. And that's something that we've always done. So that has helped us make sure that we're really ready for what clients are asking us to do. I think in terms of a leadership behaviour, it's not one of our behaviours, but one of the things that's come through is focus. Um, and I think many organisations are saying that there was such a focus, which you can only really get in a crisis. You can't kind of recreate that crisis feeling and adrenaline day to day in a business. It's just not realistic. When the crisis hit for our own business and other businesses and how are we going to support our employees, the focus that our leadership team showed and the alignment, going back to what I was talking to before, was brilliant. And that alignment was important because the energy was expended putting into action the decisions that we made. The energy wasn't expended having arguments internally at a global exec level about what we were going to do and how we were going to respond. We've achieved more, I mean, so much um, with big outreach programs with our clients and supporting our clients and conversations with our client with an energy and a 
focus that we haven't had before as well as supporting our employees. So I think focus, alignment, support, maintaining our customer focus at all times, they've been things that I've noticed. And with the internal team, working with organizations as I do in different areas and different spaces, it seems to me that almost some have relished the working from home and the commute is down and those kind of things. Others are almost offering this, I'm exhausted by Zoom and I used to have gaps in between the meetings where I could walk to another office or another building and those have all gone now. And one person's experience is joy is another person's experience of despair. I, I just wondered what that general redefining of the style of work... Where do you feel it's going? I think if I talk about our own organisation, um, what our thinking is, we've gone from two extremes, right? We've gone from people being in the office virtually all the time with the odd working from home day to everybody working from home all of the time. The pendulum will now swing back to somewhere in the middle. What we are trying to do at my organisation is introduce something that we're going to term smart working. Each individual, like you say, each individual has different personal preferences, different setups at home, different roles that require different things. And so what we are going to do, and, and this isn't a policy, it's not a sort of, it's more of a culture change, the way it's going to take a while to get used to and embed, but just make smart decisions. So about where and when people work. So looking at the role and putting our clients first is extremely important. But then also managers working with employees to understand their personal preferences, what works for them, and ultimately how they're going to be most productive, helping them think, well, what kind of work have I got on today? Would I benefit from being in the office or would I benefit more and actually be more productive at home? Am I more productive if I've been to the gym for two hours in the morning and I start work at 10 o'clock? Or am I more productive if I start work early because I prefer to get up early and get home for four o'clock so I can see the kids. So what I'm going to start to encourage people to do, we've already started it. It's certainly nowhere near the way that we're working yet because we're still having to be quite directive about people in most of our locations about where they work. But getting to a point where people are making smart decisions with productivity and well-being at the heart of it. So productivity from their own perspective, because everybody feels good when they're productive, but you know, with our clients in mind, and also from a well-being perspective. And obviously those two are linked anyway, well-being and productivity. So I think that the pendulum is, you know, it's in one direction and it will normalize somewhere in the middle. What I would like to see in my business anyway, is not having one rule for everybody and that we're in a position now where trust has grown about working from home and we help people make smart decisions based on their role, based on their personal situation about where they will best work. That's where I'd like to get to. It's a little bit like behaviours instead of values, which is, well, if you're paid to knock nine nails into a piece of wood in a week, then almost, I don't really care when you do it. Yeah. Richard Semler, who wrote Maverick, that was a relatively iconic book about his family business in Argentina. I may have got that bit wrong, but South America, I believe. And he wrote a book called The Seven Day Weekend, which was this idea that said, if I open up and work on a PowerPoint presentation on Sunday for two hours, then why can't I go to the cinema with my kids on a Tuesday, (laughs) middle of the day, i.e. I'm not really being paid for when I work, I'm being paid for output and also ensuring that relationships are where they should be and I'm not just working in isolation. But if people are fully engaged with me and the work's done, do you really care? And that's a trust issue, isn't it? Where um, which, is, which is hugely important, I guess. You've basically just recited the slides I was pulling together last night on this. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's all about trust. And previously, people haven't trusted people working from home. But this has forced us into that position. And I just hope people don't revert. It is about a balance. It's about give and take. So it's fine if you want to go to the cinema on a Monday afternoon every week, as long as it doesn't clash with a client meeting or a weekly team meeting because you can't be rearranging meetings around people's personal schedules all the time because it's completely inefficient so it comes 
back down to the productivity point. So the output-based performance management is the key thing. I'm not rewarding you for how hard you've tried or your presenteeism in the office. I'm rewarding you for what you've delivered. And for me, because I think I grew up at a consultancy, we were all over the place doing all different bits of work with different clients in different time zones. It was just how I grew up. So it's not completely natural there. to me. Yeah, but yeah. there are other people in our organization who just didn't grow up in an organization like that. And it was much more about clocking in and clocking out. And to some people, you know, some of our employees are saying to me, I actually like being told what hours to work. I like the fact that I know I've got to be in the office at nine till six, Monday to Thursday and nine to four on a Friday. And it gives me some structure that I like to stick to, which is great. So that works for them. That's brilliant. But other people who may have caring responsibilities or hobbies, like you say, it works differently for. But ultimately, trust and lots of communication and output-based performance management are the key elements to this. I think the bit I particularly get interested in is we always talk about trust between the business and the people that work within it. But I'm also quite intrigued about this idea of trust within the people that work within it at your own level. And what I mean by that is your job might be different to mine. And if you have to come into the office, but I don't, or you see me working in a very flexible way because I can and you can't, is you, again, back to almost to this point of connection and this willingness to contribute to others. I am not jealous of you. I'm not yeah. going to go, well, they're, they're going home. It, yeah. I'm going to go home. They can go home early in that team. Yeah, but in this team, we can't. And that being okay and not making it and not bringing it all down to a homogenized level just to suit those that have got the hump over it, basically. <laughs> and I think generally, if it, again, it comes down to communication. So if Billy, who sits next to me, is allowed to do something that I'm not allowed, it's more, it shouldn't be allowed. That's probably the wrong word. If we've agreed that Billy has more flexibility than me, there must be a reason for that. So as long as I understand the reason, then I shouldn't sit here feeling bitter and twisted about it. And I think there's the trust. Favoritism is a different thing, isn't it? That's We're not talking favoritism. We're talking well, actually that's just, the, yeah. the scope and scale of their role. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. we sit and we talk about the role, we talk about your preferences, and we try to make smart decisions to come up with the optimal answer. And I think the employer has to trust the employee that they're going to deliver what they're going to deliver. Employees have to trust each other, but also employees have to trust the employer. And by that, I mean, by requesting flexibility, they won't be treated negatively. So they're not going to miss out on promotions, for example, or career development, because they happen to have been asked for more flexibility than others. They have to trust the organisation that the organisation won't take advantage and say, well, that person's happy because they've got lots of flexibility. So we'll give the promotion to someone else. So there's real elements of trust that have to be built over a long period of time and have to be lived. But I think if you can get your organisation into that place, you'll be more successful because I think your people will be happier, more engaged, well-being will be stronger and your productivity will be higher, which is what it's all about. If I look ahead, it feels like the country and then the world is trying to wake up. Yeah. Where is your energy right now? I think the most exciting things for me are the fact that this has changed how organisations view their real estate portfolios. And that sounds boring in a way, but it is exciting as a prospect for our business because we've been seeing this opportunity for a while. The opportunity we've now got, which is why I came here, which was to grow a business and help more and more clients and really jet this agility and flexibility into quite a traditional industry is probably the most exciting thing. And then for me, it's really going back to what we talked about when I got off that plane from Kuala Lumpur and then walked into the lockdown over here. It's going back to that agenda and making sure that we finish off that and do it really properly. There's still quite a lot of work to do. Really looking at that is probably the focus over the course of the next 12 months. I mean, one of the things I hear when I speak to you that really struck me the first time I met you was that there are many types of different personalities in every role, but you have a real commercial driver and you are in that HR role. It sits very much alongside commercial imperatives and understanding 
understanding the business at that level, which is sometimes different to HR people who are very good at their job, but never really come to grips with the commercials and don't necessarily have the learning or the verbal fluency of it. They're almost pigeonholed as highly effective in role. They're more of an expert provider slash service proposition. I really hear in you that business partner commerciality. Do you almost have that sense that that is becoming more and more important for people in HR roles to have that parity of commercial expertise and not just HR competence? I think it's been more important since we moved away from the days of personnel. You know, I think it's been important over the last 20 years. We just don't have enough people. I say somewhat hesitantly against my lovely industry or profession, but they're just too many people who either don't think like that, weren't trained and raised like that, or don't have the seat at the table. So they're not making business and commercial decisions. They are just making HR decisions. I don't know where that comes from in me. I've just always believed in the importance of people as your top commercial asset, which is a trite thing to say and if you get that bit right you have a successful business I I just wish there were more HR people like that I think it's trite if all you've got to back it up is standard HR policy that basically I could get anybody in to do I think it doesn't become trite when you're holding people to account for it steering the culture in that way I think at that point it becomes something far from that seeing a workforce who I just love seeing a workforce who are highly engaged really proud of where they work they understand the part they play in the whole and their business is successful that's pretty magical for me I think one of the biggest things I've noticed in the HR community is that there are almost two types of personalities there are those that have an inbuilt submission to anybody who's on a board level and what I mean by that is even if the HRD is on the board they're still fundamentally submissive I'm not the sales director I'm not the commercial director I'm not the ops director and I don't hear that in your voice I don't hear a sense of less parity or less peer equality I feel that you own that no I have to be at that level to operate yeah Um, which I I know is your DNA but it's also I think what the role requires yeah and I am very straight talking you are. <laughs> um, I've had that feedback positively and negatively during the course of my career. I think it's interesting, actually, now you say that, that when I was in Shell, I was in a HR manager role. It was a global HR manager, but it was a small business. And I worked for the CEO of that business. And in my appraisal, he said to me, the only time I ever spoke up in exec meetings was when it was a people issue or an HR issue. And he said, I want to see you talking about things, if you're going to be really strong in HR, that are outside of HR and people. And it was almost that bit of feedback that gave me the permission. I suddenly, I'd never occurred to me before I thought you're here to do my role and I'll contribute when I'm speaking about people and he almost gave me the permission to do that and so I think that was probably one of the most helpful bits of feedback I've ever had because I suddenly felt like I was allowed to speak up and other issues and that's now been going on you know I don't know 15 years in my career so it's just habit and ever since then I haven't shut up <laughs> but also it's interesting that permission sounds like it was more than a permission it was actually an expectation it's a slightly different thing I don't just sit there I don't give you permission and if you do that's great no I expect you to have any work for four companies in my life. The CEO that I work with is obviously key to me because how they view the HR function makes or breaks whether I'll be happy in that job and whether we'll whether we'll get on or whether we'll clash. So just before we come to a close, I'd like to just hear a little bit about the foundation that you're involved in. And I know that's had to go a little bit quiet during the lockdown. It'd be just great just to hear a little bit about it, just to put it on people's radar and how they may connect with it or look to it if they wanted to. Yeah, thank you. One of the things that's been so hard, I think, for everybody is thinking on the implications of what this has done to other industries. And there are industries that are obviously really hurting as a result of COVID. And one of them is the charity industry. So when we were talking the other day and you said to 
to me, you know, how's it been outside of work? It's been challenging, I would say, at home for many working mums and dads. But the other pit is around the charity sector. And I'm trustee of a really, really small charity that we set up in memory of a friend of ours. And it's called the Chris Bevington Foundation. And we look to raise money to help primarily children in disadvantaged circumstances through the power of music. So Chris was a music lover, worked in a very senior role at Spotify. The reason it's been difficult is because we have not been able to do our fundraising events. And so... I think that's been something that our main fundraising event was due to be in May, which is a big, it's big for us, festival in Oxfordshire, family festival, and we haven't been able to run it. And so I think that's been the other thing. When you're involved in businesses or charities or non-for-profits outside of work, and I'm involved in a couple, this one obviously being closest to my heart, when those organisations just haven't been able to either raise money or then go and help the people that desperately need it. So I guess my final plea would be for people to think about charities, not just my own. I mean, that's the one that I'm passionate about. Think of the charity world out there and if you can donate, whether it be food banks or whether it be just donating an extra five pounds through a website, then I would encourage you to do that because the charity sector is really hurting. Well, listen, thank you so much. Just as I bring us to a close, this has been a really great conversation for me and I've truly valued it. I think there's a lot of value just to hear somebody talk from their position and just to hear the humanity in your voice and just where your energy and your focus goes, I think is hugely valuable to others. So thank you very much. Thanks, Guy. So that was Lucinda Pullinger. I thought that was a great episode. I hope you got as much value out of it as I did. As I said at the start of the episode, we've got some fantastic guests lined up. If you enjoyed it, you know what to do. Subscribe. And of course, you know what I'm going to say, right? Tell everybody. See you on the next episode. That's it. Subscribe so you keep updated on new episodes. Visit livingbrave.com if you want to connect with us and find out more. This has been Leadership Bites. See you soon.